Good to have you all with us. We've only got a couple more weeks here. Um, we're looking at the wisdom literature, mainly um, the books that Solomon wrote this morning. And then after that, we're going to look at Daniel. We'll spend a whole week on Daniel, which will be a lot of fun. Really hope you don't miss that one. Um, and then kind of look at some of the um, post-exilic books. So like Ezra and Nehemiah, when the people return to the land, and then Chronicles, which is how the Hebrew Old Testament ends with Chronicles, kind of as a recap of everything that's gone on so far in the uh, biblical storyline. So that'll be a lot of fun. Hope you guys have enjoyed this as much as I have, except for the week on the Minor Prophets. That was painful to me. So this is a lot better. Three books is, is much, 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 much more doable than 10. So, so we're going to be in Proverbs to begin with. I've got some slides, and then we'll, um, we'll, we'll move through Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs. Before we do that, let me pray. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your goodness to us, even just the kind grace that we can come together and just dive into your word, um, that we can have two services where we look at the Bible. I mean, it should, is an amazing blessing that you have given us. So we thank you for that. Thank you for just this um, season um, of the holidays where we ought to pause, slow down, and reflect on how you have been good to us. I pray that we would be intentional on how we do that. Um, Lord, I just pray for this morning as we look at some of this wisdom literature that you have given us, um, that we would apply it to our lives, that we would um, not merely be hearers of the word, but doers as well. I pray that you would bless this time. In the name we pray, amen. Amen. So Proverbs is where we're going to start. I wanted to, before that, give a little bit of um, an introduction just to wisdom literature in big picture. Sometimes you'll see this. Um, so like Dominion and Dynasty, right? How many of you guys have read Dominion and Dynasty? One. Brent, Brent, okay, some people. Keep, yeah. I just say this. You don't need to read the first chapter of that book. The first chapter of that book, he's basically arguing that the Bible is the Bible. Just skip that part. You believe that, okay? Go to the part where he starts talking about Genesis, and it's super good, okay? Um, but if you notice in there, he actually only spends... He spends like three pages on the books that we're looking at this morning, okay, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon, um, whereas a lot of these other books, you know, he's spending 10 pages, 20 pages, stuff like that, and it's actually really common in a lot of uh, big books on biblical theology, you know, big picture of the Bible, that they almost, they, they don't know what to do with the wisdom literature. They don't know what to do with books like Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, because they don't really progress the storyline, right? So if you're going, you know, Genesis to Malachi, generally speaking, it's, you know, in sequential order. Here's what's going on. The prophets pause, and they kind of give commentary on that, but they're still pushing the storyline forward. Well, with the wisdom literature, it's not moving the story forward. And so sometimes you'll see this in books as it's like, well, you've got, you know, they'll call it covenant literature or Israelite literature, the story of Israel. And then we have all this wisdom literature kind of off to the side, and they kind of sometimes don't know what to do with it. Um, I just want to argue just a little bit this morning that they're not as disconnected as might first appear, okay? That the wisdom literature isn't this kind of separate, you know, thing that doesn't relate to the rest of the Old Testament. No, it actually does. It, it is different. It is unique. There's a reason why we call it wisdom literature, but it's not as disconnected as you might think. I mean, I was just thinking of this, right? In the concept of fearing the Lord, fearing Yahweh, Right? Job talks about that, um, Proverbs 1, Ecclesiastes 12. The, the fear of Yahweh is 
essential to the wisdom literature, and we see that all throughout the Pentateuch, right? And the rest of the Old Testament, right? What's the problem with Israel when you come to Jeremiah? The, the fear of Yahweh is not in them. And in the New Covenant, he's saying, I'm going to put the fear of me in you. Um, you come to Exodus 20 and the giving of the Ten Commandments. And one of the reasons why God gives them the Ten Commandments is so that they would fear Yahweh. That's what Exodus 20 says. And so the fear of Yahweh, which is central to the rest of the Old Testament, is central in the wisdom literature as well. Just a simple concept like that. They're not as disconnected as you might think. I want to give a couple examples um, of this from the texts themselves. This is from, I thought this was interesting, Proverbs 29, 18. Where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint, but blessed is he who keeps the law. Law is the same word for Torah right there, right? Referring to the first five books of the Bible. And um, prophetic vision, real interesting, that's mainly used throughout the Old Testament referring to the visions that the prophets received, right? Remember like Isaiah, the vision that he received? You go through the minor prophets, the, the vision that, you know, Micah or Amos, whoever it is, that, that they saw. And so it seems that at least in Proverbs 29, 18, what's going on there is the author is saying where there is no one who's listening to the prophets, people cast off restraint, but blesses he who keeps the Torah. So it seems to be that he's alluding to what? The rest of the Old Testament, right? That they're not actually as disconnected as you might think. Here's another really good example. This one should kind of, you know, maybe if, you're, if you've read Deuteronomy and you're reading Proverbs, this kind of leaps off the page, right? This is Proverbs 6, 20 to two, uh, 22. My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. Well, it seems to be that Solomon is just reading Deuteronomy. He's just reading Deuteronomy chapter 6. And these were, this is after, you know, the Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then later on, he says, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligent, diligently to your children. What's Solomon doing? He's teaching them to his son, right? And shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. So you see the, the connection between those two, right? It's not that Solomon's getting this out of nowhere. No, he's, he's going back, as the prophets do, they're going back to the Torah, the Pentateuch, and they're saying, hey, this is what God has said. You also see, I thought this was, I mean, it's kind of duh, but I hadn't thought of it. You know, all throughout the Proverbs, they're alluding, hey, don't covet, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't bear false witness. What does that sound like? Ten Commandments, right? So the wisdom literature is based off of that in large part. They're, they're not super disconnected. This was really exciting. I want you, I'm, I'm a nerd. You guys have probably noticed that from this class, okay? This was really interesting. So you guys remember Proverbs 3, right? You know, trust in the Lord, you know, with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding. Um, in all your ways, acknowledge him. He'll make your path straight. Well, he goes on to say this. Honor Yahweh from your wealth. So the far left here is Proverbs 3, 9. And from the first of all your produce, so your barns will be filled with plenty. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to look up and see where barns, that word for barns, where else is it used in the Old Testament? And it only comes up one other place. And if you see that blue highlight, that's Deuteronomy, um, oh, what is that? That's Deuteronomy 28? I didn't write it down. I think it's Deuteronomy 28. Um, I think it's Deuteronomy 28, 8. 
the Lord will command the blessing on you in your barns and all that you undertake. That's dealing with, if you guys remember, blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience, right? We've talked about that a lot. So he's saying, if you obey, and this is earlier in Deuteronomy 26, the middle column here, you shall take some of the first of all the fruit of your ground, okay? Say, honor the Lord with your first harvest, okay? The first portion, okay? If you do that, Deuteronomy 28, the Lord is going to bless you, okay? The Lord will command the blessing on you in your barns, and I'll let you undertake. The only other place barns is used is in Proverbs 3. So it seems to me that Solomon is probably just reading Deuteronomy, and he's going, hey, if you honor Yahweh from your wealth, like the first of all your produce, like Deuteronomy 26, if you do that, your barns will be filled with plenty just like God promised in Deuteronomy 28.8. Is that kind of cool? I don't know. I thought that was really interesting. It's the only other time that Hebrew word for, for barns is used. And so what I wanted to say with this and, and some of the, prover, the Proverbs, they're, they're never meant to be you know, promises where if you do this, this is exactly going to happen. It's generally setting up this is the way God works. Okay? They're, they're principles. Um, and we, we saw this with Job, right? It's not, you know, it's not a strict do this and outcomes this. No, God in his sovereignty is complex. But generally speaking, this is the way God works. And so I thought that was an interesting example. So through the Proverbs, you know, there are some principles that we can't just take over because we're not in the Mosaic Covenant under the same blessings for obedience or curses for disobedience. We're not under that. So, you know, if you honor the Lord with all your produce... Well, no, your, your barns aren't going to be filled with plenty to that same extent that Israel was because we're not in that covenant relationship. But generally speaking, this is the way God works, is that if you honor him, he blesses you. Okay? But then again, with Job, that's not always going to be the case. So that was just an introduction um, just to give you some... When people are saying, hey, you know, the wisdom literature, it's, it's its own separate thing, it's not the case. Okay? They're really connected. You guys see that? That's all he's trying to do with those verses, okay? They're not as disconnected as you think. Okay, Proverbs. Turn there if you haven't already. Proverbs 1. I need to turn there as well. You guys know this. We're, we're not going to get through every single proverb. We're just going to hit some, some highlights. There's some difficult sayings in Proverbs. Uh, my, my professor at Masters, um, Abner Chow, said it's like theological Sudoku, right? There's some, there's some tough, tough ones in there. Uh, date, author, setting, purpose. You can see that there. There's varieties. You've got multiple authors. Generally speaking, Solomon's writing a lot of it. Um, but you've got King Lemuel, which we don't know anything else. Um, Agur. Clearly, uh, Proverbs was compiled at a later date by someone. Um, maybe Ezra, Nehemiah, scribe, something like that. But there is, very similar to Psalms, there's some intentional putting together of the book. You could say purpose. Uh, you could just put it simple. God's wisdom. God's wisdom, I would say, for God's world, right? This is the way God's world works. And you kind of see, sometimes what people will call it is kind of this like royal wisdom, royal court wisdom. You guys see that? I have that, you know, all my subpoints there, royal, royal, royal. And you see this throughout Proverbs, right? He's, Solomon's saying, hear my son, hear my son, and you need to obey this. Hear my son, and you need to do this. And what it seems to be what he's doing there is that this is wisdom needed for the entire society, from the king all the way down. This biblical wisdom, this God-honoring wisdom, this fear of the Lord needs to permeate all of society. And so that seems to be what's going on there. Um, wisdom, 
you could put it this way, wisdom is, is not just intellectual knowledge, it's skill. It's skill at applying that. Skill in taking, this is what I wrote, skill in taking all that God has said and applying it to the situation, right? It's a both and. It's not just knowing the right answers. It's actually doing them, living them out. It's a both and, what to do and how to apply it to every aspect of life. Um, yeah, let me, let me get going here. Proverbs 1, 1 to 7, you know, the introduction to the book. Great, great stuff in here. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight. You could put it this way. I think knowledge, or this word know, has more to do with like factual data. Like, hey, you, you, you understand something. You know that two plus two equals four, right? You know that. But then to understand, you could say, is more of like ability to discern how that knowledge actually works itself out. That's kind of like applying that knowledge. Does that make sense? Understanding would be would be taking it and moving with it. To receive instruction in wise dealing and righteousness, justice and equity. To give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. So this book is for simple people. It's for people who, I would argue, as you know, 1 verse 7, fools despise wisdom and instruction. This is a book for people who are foolish, who are simple, who are youths, who need to learn and be corrected. And that's great because that's all of us, right? I've always, this is kind of where you need a whole, you know, canonical, you know, theology of the Bible. But sometimes Proverbs, you know, there's not a lot of grace in Proverbs. Like, it's like, hey, if you do this, you're going to ruin your life. And it's like, I've done that. Ah. <laughs> and it's like, what do I do now? And so that's where you, 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 you take the wisdom principle and you go, okay, I'm not going to do that again. I need to move on. And realize that the Lord does give grace, that he does correct us, but he does offer grace to bring us back to the right path. And you're not, you know, forever, you know, in trouble because you, you fail at one of these Proverbs, because we all have. 1 verse 7 is kind of that, that key verse, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And I would argue if Job is written early, Solomon is just going back to Job, and he's saying, we need to be like a guy like Job in chapter 1 who feared the Lord and trusted in him. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Now let me keep moving here. Point B here, royal court wisdom. There's some interesting points that I thought were, were, were interesting. This is uh, Proverbs 2, 7. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He's a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of wisdom, watching over the way of his saints. He goes down and talks about every good path. Just reminded me of Psalm 1, right? Blesses man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the way of sinners. You know, Proverbs is very clear that life is a, is a matter of paths. There's two paths you can go down. You know, as much as we like Forrest Gump, life is not like a box of chocolates. It's like paths. It's two paths, right? You need to go on the right path, not in the way of sinners. You need to walk in the Lord's path. Um, this is... Oh, chapter 3, this is just an amazing verse. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. Don't try and figure it out on your own. In all your ways, acknowledge him. You need the wisdom that only the Lord can provide. He will make, your, make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Chapter 5. A lot of Proverbs, you know, writing to his son, he deals with the nature of sexual temptation, right? 
I mean, that, that is a very, very strong motif recurring over and over in Proverbs, right? Sexual sin. He says, my son, be attentive to my wisdom, incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion, and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. Look, it looks great, but can you discern and see through? But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. You know, can you see through your sin and temptation? There's a really good quote here from John Owen, the best man living knows not himself until he comes to temptation. Super good. Um, it's true, right? It's when we're put into those moments that we realize, wow, we're not nearly as strong as we think we are. You know, can you see what's really going on here? This is kind of why I like, you know, weird movies like, you know, like The Matrix or like Inception, you know, because it's like, like something's being like pulled over your face and you're like, there, there's something more going on here. Like, there, there's something else. This can't be all that it is. And that's kind of how you got to think through, like, your sin and temptation, right? Is that, wow, this looks great. Wow, this looks appealing. This looks sweet, you know, sweeter than oil. But in the end, it leads to death, right? Get away from it. Get out of there. Then we move on. Let's see here. These are just some, some high points I wanted to hit on. Proverbs 15, just big picture structure. Proverbs 1 to 9 has more structure, like it's saying my son, and he lists through very thematically together. And then kind of chapters 10 to the end, at least the 29, there's less structure. It's more like one-offs, you know, here's a verse about this, here's a verse about this. Although if you actually work through those chapters, there is stuff that's connected, right? This is generally speaking about the tongue. This is generally speaking about how you use money and stuff like that. So less structure, but it keeps going. Um, you could just say this, Proverbs, teaches that the way you conduct yourself has ramifications in the future. Another good movie quote. Uh, you guys have seen Gladiator, another one of my favorite movies. He says something really good at the beginning, when before they go into battle. He says, man, what we do in life echoes in eternity. It's actually really good, right? What we do in life echoes in eternity. What you do today and tomorrow has ramifications for the future. Proverbs is teaching that exact same thing. Um, Proverbs 15, 28 I thought this was good. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. You see heart and mouth put together. And I think Jesus just picks up on that in Matthew, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You know, the mouth reveals our sinful heart. This is a good one. Proverbs 26, 17. Whoever meddles in a quarrel, not his own, is like one who takes a passing dog by the ears. Like you're just, people are arguing and quarreling, and you're like, ooh, I'm going to jump in on that. It's like grabbing a dog and shoving your face into the dog's face. Like You're going to get your face chomped off. Okay? Don't do that. <laughs> Don't meddle in a quarrel, not your own. Keep moving here. Chapters, uh, well, this is an excellent wife. I thought this was really cool. The only other time that this phrase, an excellent wife, you see it like two other times in Proverbs, an excellent wife, the only other time it is used is in the book of Ruth. You see that in Ruth chapter 3, verse 11. For all my fellow uh, townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. The exact same phrase. And so actually how, I think it's how the Tanakh, how the Hebrews, um, how the Jews structured their Old Testament. I think Ruth comes right after Proverbs. And the reason why they do that is to show the exemplar of the Proverbs 31 woman is Ruth. At least that's what they thought. And they're just making a 
you know, argument from the text. I thought it was really interesting. Right? An excellent wife. Well, who we look to? Ruth, who, who trusted in Yahweh and, um, yeah, you see how the Lord used her. So, I, I mean, I could say a lot more on Proverbs, but um, we'll move on to Ecclesiastes. Any questions on Proverbs real quick? Anything? Great, great book. Theological themes, I already mentioned it. It's God-centered, deals with the tongue, poverty and riches, sexual sin, wisdom and folly, work and laziness. Um, who are your friends? Watch out for that. All right, Ecclesiastes. Yes. Yeah, yeah, so I, I mentioned kind of earlier at the beginning that, um, you know, for example, Proverbs 3 is a really good example that you have blessings and curses worked in from um, Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And so I would argue that, you know, the, the blessings and curses that were given to Israel, we, we don't, we're not under those, right? Right? Christ became a curse for us, right? Galatians 3 talks about. And so we're not under the Mosaic Covenant. And so specifically, those blessings and curses that are tied to it which Solomon alludes to in large, large part in uh, Proverbs, we don't have those, right? We're not going to be blessed in the same way. We're not going to be cursed in the same way. Um, but yeah, I would argue just how Proverbs works is that this is God's wisdom for God's world. This is how things generally work. But you especially see in the book of Job, that's, a, that's not always the case. Like Job did all these great, wonderful things. He honored the Lord um, but you see tremendous hardship come in his life, right? And so Proverbs is saying, yes, generally speaking, this is the way the world works. But are there exceptions? Yeah, of course. Yeah, so, I mean, what you could say is um, we're supposed to have faith and trust in God's promises, right? And Proverbs isn't promising us stuff. It's acting us to trust by faith in his promises. Does that make sense to me, the difference between the two? Um, but yeah, they're, they're not a one-to-one, do this, and out comes money or riches. Because, um, I mean, experience just shows that that's not the case. So. Does that help a little bit? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you still all throw out Psalms, right? Like, why do the wicked prosper? Like, this is not supposed to be the way it is, but in many ways it is. Um, but I think Proverbs and whole canonical biblical theology would say, yeah, but discern their way. They're on the path to destruction, and, you know, that's the most important thing. So, yeah, good question. Okay, Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, turn there real quick. I would just say this. The, the, the videos I sent you, if you still want the link, just come up, talk to me. The videos for these books are really, really good, because I can't talk about everything. They're super good. Uh, I put one in here from Jim Hamilton, who talks about Ecclesiastes. It is excellent. You need to listen to it. It's required. You cannot come next week to listen to Daniel unless you watch this video. I'm just kidding. But it's that good. He argues um, very, very convincingly for um, Solomon writing the book of Ecclesiastes. He deals with, um, you know, some of this higher criticism, you know, that came out of Germany in the 1800s of, you know, all these, you know, modern secular scholars of, well, you know, Paul really didn't write this, Paul really didn't write that, or Solomon didn't write this. He does a really good job interacting with that. Really, really good. And it's like 25 minutes. So you can do it this afternoon. Super good. Um, Ecclesiastes. I'm going to talk about it a little. Whoops, I think I was already on the right slide. I was. Ecclesiastes 1, okay? Starts like this. 
the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Okay, so we think, okay, who is like, who, okay, he's the son of David, and he's the king. Okay, so that narrows it down. Can't be David, it's the son of his, okay? And he's the king in Jerusalem, okay? Look at these other passages. I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who are over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. Jump over to chapter 2. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. Okay, so I would argue that Ecclesiastes is claiming for itself that the greatest king of all kings wrote this book, okay? That's what the book on its own terms is claiming. And so we think, okay, who is that? I would argue that 1 Kings 4, this is that same section that talks about um, you know, that we looked at a lot of the greatness of Solomon's uh, reign in terms of territory. This is just right after that. Look at what it says. God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than all other men. Jump down to verse 32. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. Who else? Think about this. Who else, maybe back in the book of Genesis, also was maybe like naming beasts and birds and reptiles and fish? Adam, right? I would argue, 1 Kings 4 through chapters 10, by the way, is just an amazing, you could call this the golden era of Israel. I would argue the text, the biblical authors, ultimately God, wants us to see Solomon as in this new Adam light. Maybe he's the guy. Maybe he's the one who's going to fulfill the promises of bringing God's kingdom to earth and that um, the earth is going to be filled with God's glory. Well, we know from Solomon, real quick, you know, 1 Kings 11, is that the case? No, he ain't the guy. But in terms of greatness of wealth, greatness of prosperity, wisdom, Solomon is the greatest guy to ever live. I, I mean, he is amazing like this. And so I think when you come to Ecclesiastes, he's teaching very clearly this is the author of the book. Some people will say it's Koheleth, which you're like, what is that? It's just that word in Ecclesiastes 1 where it says the words of the preacher. It just means like assembler. Okay, well, Solomon does exactly that in 1 Kings 8. He gathers all the people together and he preaches an amazing sermon. Um, that's another just passage to look at. 1 Kings 8, it's amazing um, in how it's God-centered and so full of theology. So I would argue Solomon wrote the book. Okay, and that's significant because... You guys know Ecclesiastes. What, what's the key word? Vanity of vanities, great futility, emptiness, meaninglessness, okay? Think about this. If the greatest guy ever who had everything he ever wanted and could have ever desired was the wisest man on the earth, if he's writing about the futility of life, do you think life is futile? Yeah, exactly, right? That's the point. And so I would argue pretty strongly for, for Solomon writing the book um, we'll move through this pretty quickly um, because I just have to. We've got to get the Song of Solomon, um, Song of Songs. I think Ecclesiastes 12, 9 to 14, the conclusion of the book, is kind of the hermeneutical lens by which to study the whole book. Okay? So if you're like, man, how do we understand Ecclesiastes? I think the conclusion of the book really, really helps. Okay? So he talks about you know, the preacher, all the stuff he did. The words of the wise are like goads. They prod us. They're, they're meant to call us back to attention. Um, of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. It's good for people who read too much. Not me, but other people. Um, 
The end of the matter. So like he says, like he concludes, like, hey, here's what my book is about. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Here's the main thing you need to do. Fear God and keep his commandments. Sounds just like Proverbs, which Solomon wrote, okay? Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So I think that's how we study Ecclesiastes. Um, some people will kind of, they don't, they don't know what to do with Ecclesiastes. I, I thought this was good from Dempster. Proverbs seems life-affirming, Ecclesiastes life-denying. The one, uh, excuse me, it should just be the one. The one sees the possibilities that life affords, the other its limitations. I, I don't think Ecclesiastes is entirely optimistic nor pessimistic, okay? I think it's both. He's tearing down life and the futility of life apart from God to build it back up. So it's not just a book where you go to and you put on your sackcloth and ashes and you're just like, oh my goodness, right? That's part of it. You should see the futility of life, especially apart from God. But he also says over and over, remember this, there's nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God, right? So we should find enjoyment in life. We should take pleasure in the things that the Lord has given us. You see this, what is that, four times? There's nothing better for him to do under the sun, but to eat and drink and be joyful. And so I, I think it's both. It's optimistic and pessimistic. It's not just a bleak book. I, I think it also builds us up and does give us hope. So that's kind of Solomon's question, if you're following in the notes there, point A. Solomon's investigation, um, kind of that first section of the book. He's going through life and showing the extremes, okay? Life, death, uh, rich or poor, you know, whether you, you work really hard or you're lazy, or you know, you're all alone by yourself, or whether you're together with other people. None of this gives meaning to life, right? It, it's all futile. It's all vain. It is all nothing to it of substance. It's fleeting. You know, your life is a vapor. And so he's deconstructing life. You know, you talk about people deconstructing their faith. You don't want to do that, but you, you do want to deconstruct life and then build it back up. And I think that's what he does in the second half of the book. By the way, chapter three is super good. I heard there's a really good sermon on chapter three. You guys remember that? You know, there's a time to heal and a time to break down. There's a time he's just going back and forth. And it's kind of like someone mentioned like a clock, you know, like a grandfather clock. What do you call that thing going back and forth? Yeah, what, whatever you guys just said, that thing going back and forth. That's kind of how life works. And God's sovereign over all of that. God's sovereign over your time. How are you going to honor the Lord with your time? Um, let me just point out a passage here. Ecclesiastes 7. This is really, really good. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 2. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. I was just reminded of Psalm 90, right, written by Moses. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. So what's the point? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom, right? It's good and right to contemplate your death and to think about it because that makes you think about what really matters, right? Eternity. So that's Ecclesiastes 7. Just again, the end. Oh, this is actually Song of Solomon. We'll get there real quick. Um, again, the answer, I think, is that conclusion, right? Not, chapter 12, verses 9 to 14. This is this applies to every human ever. Fear God and keep his commandments. So Ecclesiastes, great, great book to study. Um, a lot of riches we can look at. There. Any questions about Ecclesiastes? Before we move on to Song of Songs? 
want to spend a lot of time in Song of Songs. No, I'm just kidding. Um, all right, Song of Songs. I'm going to put this quote up here because I meant to put it in your notes, and I forgot, and I printed everything. And I was like, ah. I thought this was really, really good, talking about Song of Songs. This is a beautiful but complex book. I was reading quite a bit uh, yesterday about this book, you know, kind of various interpretations and stuff like that. And I was like, man, that's in Song of Songs. Like, that's a weird section. Um, like, I don't know what's going on there. Um, like, Song of Songs chapter 5. Like, I don't know what's going on. Um, I read this, like, one interpretation. I was like, wow, that sounds really good to be true, but I don't know about that. Like, it's a complicated book. Um, and so what's great is that when Mark's done with Philippians, he's going to preach through Song of Songs. No, I'm just kidding. That's not true. Um, wanted, to, wanted to make him feel a little uncomfortable there for a little bit. Uh, no, but maybe he will. I don't know. Um, no, Song of Songs. It's a wonderful book. The author, I would argue, is Solomon. Okay? All three of these books written by Solomon. It's not an allegory. Okay? It's not allegorical. It's just merely symbolic, talking about God's love for Israel or God's love for the church. I don't think that's true. I don't think that's the case. I think it is a poem. It is a love poem. It's a poetic work on marital love, and that's great. It is, it's a good thing to celebrate. I mean, you go back to um, Eden, and you see this a lot. Like, if you guys have read Song of Solomon, you notice how, like, so much of his metaphors are, like, agricultural, like flowers and trees and all this stuff. I think he's alluding, he's trying to go back to Eden. He's talking about marriage, which was before the fall, mind you, right? Like, marriage is not something that came after the fall. Like, no, it is good. It is a great thing that was uh, given before the fall. I had to think about this, and this is where, you know, if you, I, I still don't know what I think on, on various things in, in Song of Solomon, but I don't know about you guys, but I'm like, okay, if Solomon wrote this book, like, wait a minute, dude's a bozo, like, had 700 wives, like, how is he talking about the bliss of, like, marital love, like, we shouldn't learn from this guy, like, he messed up big time on this, and so there's basic, there's a couple of options you could do more, but basically, you could say, one, he wrote this very early in his life, um, like maybe before he was even crowned king, um, and he's talking about his, uh, his first marriage, or he's writing as old Solomon, and he's reflecting on how he messed up, and he's talking about how good um, you know, his marriage was at the beginning, or he's talking about an ideal marriage. I don't know exactly what I think um, on that one, but you have to do something like that, because I don't think He's writing this, you know, in the downfall, or, or, well, actually, you know, kind of at the high point of his reign in 1 Kings 11, where he has all these wives, because that, that doesn't make sense, right? And so you have to do one, one or the other. Um, just a couple of things. I've got some, some side notes here. We've got, we've got good time. I would say the book is not just about physical intimacy, right? Um, you know, sexuality. It's not just about that. It's actually talking about um, you know, biblically committed, faithful love, and how it, it changes a person, right? Is that it's, it's, it's passionate and faithful, and it's committed, and that it changes our, our souls when we're invested in that person. I wrote here, passion and commitment should characterize man and wife before, during, and after the wearing, wedding ceremony. That's kind of how the book works. If you look at the structure, right, the courtship, the wedding, the marriage, you know, it's kind of, you know, point B is the, the lead up to this, you know, their wedding, but you see that all throughout this life, all throughout this book, rather, um, they're passionate and committed to each other before in a pure way, 
during in a pure way and after in a pure way in God's eyes. Um, This I thought was a a good point too. If you notice how Song of Solomon, like it's actually like, when I read it, it's not like, oh, like I blush, like, oh, this kind of, like he keeps sexuality very PG, right? I thought it was interesting because if you guys remember, I don't know if you read it, but like Ezekiel 16 and Ezekiel 23, when he's talking about um, the sin of Israel and he's comparing it to spiritual adultery, like it's like rated X. Like it's like, whoa, that's in the Bible, whoa, okay? Talking about the sinfulness. But when he's talking about the beauty and righteousness, the goodness of marriage, he keeps it like G. And I, I think that's a good principle. Like so should we, like talking about marriage, like in physical intimacy, we should not talk about it like the way he talks about, you know, Ezekiel talks about sin in Ezekiel 16. We should talk about it the way God talks about it in Song of Songs, right? Um, I thought that was a good, good principle there. By the way, I forgot to mention this. I even wrote this wrong on my notes. But a better title for the book is Song of Songs, not Song of Solomon. That's how the book starts, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. And he's saying, like, this is the superlative. This is the greatest of all songs, okay? So if you say Song of Solomon, or if you hear someone say that, don't be like, it's not Song of Solomon, Um, because I get it wrong too. But it's Song of Songs. He's talking about the greatest of all songs, the greatest of all of these. Um, I just want to point out a couple things from this book because we're running out of time here. Um, First thing, if you notice the pronouns, you'll see back and forth, right? And the ESV has this to help, like, right? He, she, others, he, she, others, back and forth. It's really interesting how um, the, the pronouns switch back and forth talking about the other person, like, like true love is about the other person. It's not about me and how it makes me feel and you do all these great things for me. He's just, they're proclaiming the, the, the wonderfulness, you could say, of each other. Love is about the other person, okay? And you see that all throughout Song of Songs. I thought this was a really good quote from Dwayne Garrett, who's one of my professors at Southern. The passion that demands fidelity is also a shield fidelity or shield against infidelity. To try to live without the passions of love is not merely frustratingly hopeless. It is unwise, unbiblical, and an open door to the very lust it is trying to bar. In the song, right passion is a protection against wrong passion. Really helpful. And I think Paul pretty much says the same thing in in 1 Corinthians 7, right? So the Lord has given you your spouse to protect against wrong passion. Um, One more thing. Turn there with me. We, We have time. Song of Songs, chapter 4, the end of chapter 4. So this will be, what, the end of verse 16, end of chapter 5, verse 1. I remember this from my Old Testament class um, at Masters, and I was like, whoa. Song of Songs, so the end of chapter 4, verse 16. This is talking about, like, the, the, the wedding night of the two people, okay? The, the bride and the groom, okay? Their wedding night. She says this. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. He, this is chapter 5, verse 1, I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk, okay? And then you have this, others. Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. Okay, it's talking about like the wedding night of bride and groom, okay? We we understand what's going on here, okay? But then you have like, who are these other people? Like, uh, this is kind of creepy all of a sudden, right? And so com- commentators actually don't know what to do. It's like, who are the others? Like, like, who are these people talking? 
because, I mean, the wedding night is a private thing between husband and wife, right? Who are all these other people? And, you know, I don't think Song of Solomon is talking about like an orgy or anything like that. And so I would argue, and this is because Dr. Chow does, is that this is actually God speaking. That God is actually speaking, and he is the one who actually is saying, hey, this is good. He's giving his divine approval to marriage. I think that's the most natural way to read it. Um, Well, maybe not the most natural way, but I think if you actually think through, okay, wait a minute, what's going on here? That makes the most logical sense in the book. Um, And it's cool too, right? Like, that's amazing. Like, God is approving it. Yes. No. I think just that instance. Context. I know that's kind of a, it's not a super helpful answer. But, I mean, if you read the other sections, it's like, okay, like, I could see where other people are saying this and it's not inappropriate or weird. In this instance, it's really inappropriate and really weird. So it's probably not. Does that make sense? I could, I could be wrong. Um, I think, I think the people witnessing the wedding, yeah, at the wedding ceremony, yeah, that's what I would say. Yeah, good question. But, again, it's not because of my superior intellect that I think that. It's because the superior intellect of another dude who is really, really smart. Um, and I'm like, oh, I'm not going to argue with Dr. Chow. I think he's right. <laughs> Timmy, you'd say the same thing, right? Yes, Timmy knows. Timmy knows. Okay. We're out of time. Any questions on anything we looked at this morning? Hopefully those were were helpful to you. Next week, Daniel. Okay, so Daniel, I'm going to be reading a lot of this week because Daniel is complex. And so that should be a lot of fun to look at. But there's going to be some riches. And and hopefully you kind of see it all coming together, right? If you remember Isaiah and Ezekiel and these prophecies, Daniel is really bridging the gap for us. So that is going to be a lot of fun. Yes. Yeah. It's by Paul Twist, who was a guy at, at Master Seminary. He's a pastor. I can try and find it. Um, yeah, I can send that to you if you want. It's actually, it's a really good sermon. I listened to it when my dad was passing away from cancer. And that's actually the, con- like, he sets the sermon in that context as well, of dealing with grief and sorrow and loss. And it was Probably one of the most comforting sermons I've ever heard. It was really, really good. Yeah, I can find I can find it online and send it to you. It's really good. All right. If you have any questions, come talk to me next week, Daniel. You're dismissed.